We're sponsored by the American College of Physicians. They provide 163,000 members with lifelong education, clinical support, practice resources, professional development, networking opportunities, and advocacy. Visit acponline.org forward slash ACP100 to renew or sign up for a membership today. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Hi, Matt. How you doing, Stuart? I thought you, I, I thought you were just nope. like just out of it away. for a second. Nope. I'm doing. Oh god. Oh, good. good. We're doing audio <laughs> gag. Right. Right. The typing bit. The typing bit, Stuart. Man, it's been like 250 plus episodes since you've done that one. Great stuff. I'm doing a drive time stuff now. So uh, tonight, uh, this is part one of two. We are talking about diarrhea. And this is the acute diarrhea episode with Dr. Xiao Jing Iris Wang, who is fantastic. You'll you'll meet her shortly. And with me is Hi. the great Dr. Stuart Ken Brigham. And of course, as always, Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Paul, could you tell the audience what is it that we do on this show? Happy to, as always, Matt. We are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And in addition to our amazing expert, we also have Dr. Elena Gibson with us to produce this episode, and we'll let uh, Dr. Gibson tell us about our guest and what we discussed tonight. Thank you. So we discussed acute diarrhea with Dr. Iris Wang. She is a assistant professor of gastroenterology and hepatology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. You can find her on Twitter at iriswangmd. And she does some clinical and research in functional GI disorders or disorders of the gut-brain axis, as we learned today. She's also an amateur baker during the weekends. And in this episode, we discuss acute diarrhea, the initial evaluation, when to do more microbiologic workup, when to treat with antibiotics, and how to discuss treatment options for symptoms with patients, including loperamide and other options. Hey, Elena, do you know how patients never describe their diarrhea? Let's hear it. You don't have to do this. (laughs) Acute diarrhea. (laughs) Oh. I like that one, Paul. But sometimes floating (laughs) is cute. (laughs) Oh, dear. Let's go on. Iris, the first question we'd like to ask you is, tell the audience a one-liner about yourself and uh, any hobbies or interests you want to let them know about that you have outside of medicine. All right. I have a two-liner for you. I am a gastroenterologist working at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, specializing in functional GI disorders and abdominal pain with a passion for medical education, inspiring empathy, resilience, and individual growth in my trainees. Outside of work, I'm a wife, a toddler mom, a board game geek, and a newfound quarantine baker. (laughs) So if you want to check out my Instagram, that's what it's all going to be about. I actually really want to check out your Instagram now. (laughs) What's your favorite board game? Ooh, currently we are in the middle of Gloomhaven. We're in the middle of Gloomhaven, Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion. And Interesting. Gloomhaven is one of the, it's going to be like one of the highest rated board games on Board Game Geek. 
But yeah. the Jaws of the Lion is like a prequel that you can really play with like two people because it's now pandemic time and we can only play with two people. <laughs> Wait, it's great. Is is Board Game Geek a is that did I get the name wrong? Is that a website that you like own and run now? No. <laughs> <laughs> I thought oh. you were just like casually dropping, like, yeah, I have this whole like website thing that I. Oh, this is like D and D type stuff. Almost. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, but with rules, and so you with don't have rules. to be creative. You oh. can just do it. But it's the lack of rules that makes D and D so fun. No, but this, like, you can really yeah, there are like life lessons in board games. We That's can't sweet. get into this. This will take like <laughs> ninety minutes. All right, I'll geek out later. So, Iris, could you tell us one of your favorite? lessons or pieces of advice that you learned as a learner or as a teacher? I think one of the best things I've learned is that everybody is kind of faking it until they make it. So I have this really lovely quote by Maya Angelou that, that's, that puts it a lot better, which is, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. That's nice. And when I was a trainee, it just seemed like all the attendings and, and all the senior residents, they just knew so much and they all had it together. And then when you turn into an attending, you realize, well, the senior resident doesn't really know what I thought they knew when I was, you know, before that time. So everyone's always learning. And the more you allow yourself to ask, the more you will learn and absorb. And the only thing getting in the way of that is really pride. And so once I learned that, I felt like I was, I, I'm a better doctor for it, for being able to ask my colleagues, my fellows, and to constantly learn from everyone all the time. Yeah, I like that. That's, I'm reminded, that, not that this is the topic of the show, but Matt and I had a, an attending that we worked with when we worked together named Bill Brady, who will never hear this so I can name him, but he talked about, <laughs> there's the, the terror of, of second year of residency when you get mm -hmm. there and you're like, oh my God, I cannot lead a team. I don't know anything. And then the interns show up and they don't even know where the bathrooms are. And you're like, oh, these guys don't know anything. Like it's just, it's such a, even though it remains terrifying, it's still kind of satisfying to know that you're on this upward trajectory and sort of recognize what you, how much you've learned in that period of time. Just, if you can just maintain that, you're probably gonna be in okay shape. Yeah, absolutely. Was that your question? No, it was more of a comment. Okay, that's what I thought. <laughs> Did, were you gonna ask anything, Stuart, or do you wanna move on to the cases? I don't know. Do you have a favorite book? I already asked about the board game, but favorite book that you think any physician or person should read? I, I thought about this for a very long time, <laughs> and I, I picked a book with an expletive, and I decided Ooh. it was probably better not to go with that one. I don't know. <laughs> this is the okay, show right. for it. All right, fine. There's like so, there's like three books now with F-bombs in the title, right? And a, and a non okay, we'll go with the non-PC version, which okay. is um, this book by Mark Manson, which is called Everything is... Everything. Oh, I like that. Yeah. And he's a little wordy, he's a little verbose, but the essential of it boils down to, you know, everything is suffering. And when you make choices in life, you have to think about not really what you want, but what you are willing to suffer through. And so he gives this great example of being a rock star. And he's like, you know, I really wanted to be a rock star because all of the, the fame and the fortune, but when you think about what you have to suffer through all those nights practicing in the garage, giving up a stability, uh, a life of stability, touring, you know, that actually comes with its own suffering. And so it's not really about what you want, right? Because if you practice enough, you have the talent. Yeah, you could do it. But are you willing to suffer for it? And so in, in kind of my life, how that applied was like in, in I'm in academics, right? So what am I going to choose? Am I going to choose the suffering of writing grants? 
am I going to choose the suffering of uh, working on lectures endlessly or, or the suffering of answering patient portals? Because all of them have their upsides, right? Like, but, but it's really the downside that you need to decide whether you can put up with or not. And so I thought that was so, such a good perspective. There's a lot of other things in the book as well, but that's, that's one of my favorite things about it. Mm. And it's only $13.99 on Amazon. So there you go. I don't know what we do with that. Free at your public library. (laughs) Or free at the public library. Yeah. Uh, What do you think, team? Do we want to do picks of the week? Uh, Should we ask Elena to give a pick quickly and make us cool, Paul? I feel like she keeps us kind of up on things. Yeah. No, I I think we need the crud. It's going to be something basic again. That's a lot of pressure. (laughs) Basic again. (laughs) So actually, I have a song. It's called Strange Fruit from Billie Holiday. You guys might know it. It's a really I don't. powerful and be- <laughs> beautiful song. One of the first protest songs. I-, I heard it pretty recently and then just couldn't stop listening to it. The whole album is very nice, but uh, Strange Fruit itself, it was initially a poem. And then she took on to it and started uh, performing it. And it seems like almost every performance she would sing this song. For what that's worth, but it's a beautiful song. All right, that's homework for me. Got yeah. it queued up to listen. Yeah, me it's too. protest about lynching. So if you keep that in mind when you listen. Hey, audience. Internal medicine is evolving rapidly to meet new healthcare and practice challenges. ACP, the American College of Physicians, keeps you current with the latest clinical information and practice resources to meet those challenges and be fulfilled as a lifelong learner and as an internist. And you can add your voice to ACP's advocacy efforts. You can interact with its global community of 163,000 colleagues and access a wide array of free or discounted member services. I love being a member of ACP, not just because they do great advocacy work, but because they make fantastic educational content. The internal medicine meeting is always a highlight of the year. They have great COVID-19 website, and their POCUS modules are fantastic. If you haven't checked them out, check out their online POCUS modules. It's a great way to get an overview of point-of-care ultrasound. If you're not an ACP member, what are you waiting for? Post-training docs save $100 on their first-year membership dues through May 31st. Visit www.acponline.org forward slash ACP100 and use the code CURBSIDERS. That's acponline.org forward slash ACP100 and use the code CURBSIDERS to save $100. Join ACP today. All right. Well, with that, we will turn to the shiny topic of diarrhea. And uh, I think we need a case from Cashlack. So Elena, I will ask you to I will ask you to read us a case. All right. Happy to do that. So first case from Cash Slack today is Mr. Sam Ella. He's a 71-year-old male with a past medical history of diarrhea, hypertension, some coronary artery disease. He's coming to clinic with two-day history of diarrhea, chills, and abdominal pain. He describes previously having normal bowel movements and then suddenly developing this acute illness. He's tachycardic to the like low 110s. He's normotensive and he's febrile to 38.4. So thinking about Mr. Sam Ella, Iris, how would you define diarrhea and what would be important for you to think through when categorizing what's going on with this patient? I think 
anytime you start with a category that's symptom driven, like diarrhea, similar to things like reflux or nausea, it's really important to clarify what the patient means when they're saying diarrhea. So in the acute setting, it may be a little bit less important, but we can get into it when it's chronic diarrhea. But you really want to know, is it loose stools? Is it just frequent stools? Or is it that their stool is leaking, in which case that's more of an incontinence issue? But if it is true diarrhea, right, how we would define diarrhea would be three or more loose or liquid stools per 24 hours, or really more frequently than normal for an individual person. Because Three times a day may be normal for some people. For other people, it's three times a week is their normal. And so daily stools is actually diarrhea. A little bit of a more objective definition may be by stool weight. And that's difficult to obtain, but the definition of it, if you can obtain it, would be greater than 200 grams a day of stool. That seems like the most impractical definition. <laughs> that had to have come out for research purposes and not Correct. because anyone's just sort of weighing their stool. <laughs> Correct. And, and, and it also depends because if you eat a high fiber diet, then the cutoff's like up to 500 grams. So it, it's kind of, it's very fluid, if you will. Oh, no. so, uh, <laughs> I like where this is going. <laughs> Stuart, you have competition. <laughs> but uh, it, it, really is dependent on the individual and baseline. And so it's really important to really get the baseline from your patient. Um, in terms of your second question of how to categorize the diarrhea, you know, if, if you go by kind of GI textbook, it's really acute or chronic. But if you look at a lot of the society guidelines, it will be divided between acute, persistent, and chronic. So acute is anywhere between two to four weeks, depending on where you're looking. And if you say there's a persistent category, that category is between two to four weeks. So we can say acute is less than two weeks, persistent between two to four, and anything greater than four would be considered chronic diarrhea. All right. So where, where do we go from here for Mr. Ella? What kind of questions do we need to ask to get a better sense of, of what's going on with him? Yeah. So especially in someone who's coming in febrile, tachycardic, you really want to get a sense of timeline of the consistency of the stool and you know what has happened to trigger this diarrhea so consistency of the stool you really want to know what is there blood or not right that's the consistency that really matters a lot in this case because of his acute presentation and his inpatient need timeline wise you want to think about well did he just eat something uh, that day where it would indicate of a, a kind of more of a toxic food poisoning picture? Did he eat something bad the day before, where that would be more of a, an infection versus a toxin? Did he have an allergic response to something he was eating? Is anybody else sick? Did he just get mm. back from somewhere? And was he, was he traveling or was somebody else around him traveling uh, to expose him to something else? And in terms of kind of the quality of that stool, right? In GI, we get like real specific about what that stool looks like. And I, I have never turned down uh, an offer to look at stool. I know. <laughs> I, I know. Oh, geez. But, but, the, but what you really need to ask, right, is, is this diarrhea that is small volume with an increased frequency? Or is this a large, voluminous, watery diarrhea that's not happening that frequent? Or is it both? Is it both watery voluminous and happening all the time, because that really kind of differentiates where that potential infection or where the defect in the GI tract is. 
Can you tell us how how you think about it if it's like the the high volume, like yeah. watery but less frequent versus the small volume stuff? And at what point do you pull out the Bristol stool chart and say, hey, all, all the time. look at this. Oh, okay. It's- you have a tattoo. I have I have a forearm tattoo with a Bristol stool chart. Do you find that useful? Can can I just say that I trained once with a pediatric gastroenterologist who's amazing, by the way, who had it on a mug. Really? And <laughs> I just perfect. felt like that was just like a little too close for comfort. <laughs> What about one of those, like the football, uh, the quarterbacks have that armband with the plays on it. Like, I feel like that might be acceptable. Then it's not permanent. You know, I, I, I just have that. <laughs> um, I lost my train of thought. Oh, quality of stool. Um, can I can I just geek out for a little bit? Like I when I teach things and and talk to my my residents and fellows about things, I really want to go back to the pathophysiology of it. Yeah, do right? it. Because like understanding pathophysiology, I think helps us conceptualize a framework for a differential diagnosis. So like the, the question is like, why do we get diarrhea? What, what's up with that? So we all know that there's a lot of fluid that, that gets you know, secreted by the GI tract and we also consume fluid. And a lot of the function of the small bowel is to reabsorb that fluid and then the colon reabsorbs the rest. And we won't break it down and we won't get into numbers, but you can look all that up. But if that absorption rate is off by even 1%, you get diarrhea. And so it's, it's really a very fine-tuned system that can break down. And so it, the diarrhea comes from a number of etiologies, which is why it's going to be kind of hard to parse it out later. There can be a change in absorption rate, and that can be because there's a change in surface area or a contact time. So either there's not enough surface to absorb or not enough time for that surface to actually work. And that can be because of a change in transit time. It can be a change in the composition of what's in that luminal tract. And so, for example, if you have a lot of unabsorbed osmols, right, we'll talk about that later. Or if there's a lot of fat, it actually inhibits your ability to bind water and get water back into the lumen. And so those are kind of three big ideas about how the diarrhea happens. Going back to what we were talking about in terms of stool volume, we kind of have to think about the small bowel as kind of the workhorse in absorption. And so if there is a small bowel etiology or even a right up to a right colon etiology of diarrhea, you're going to have a large volume stool. So small bowel etiologies are usually large volume. On the flip side, if you think about the function of the left colon and especially the function of the rectum as a reservoir, when that's the area that's impacted by your inflammation, infection, what have you, it's going to lead to less ability to hold on to stool and more irritation. And so irritation of the rectum is what gives you that sense of, I need to go, I need to go, I need to go. And because it can't hold on because there's something wrong with it, you go frequently and you just produce a little bit at a time because there's actually nothing wrong with the absorption. You just need to go. And so small volume increased frequency, you think more about colonic, especially left colonic, and then the large voluminous diarrhea, right colon, small bowel in ideology. So that was extraordinarily helpful. I, I guess when we're taking a history and what we're talking about in terms of acute diarrhea, are there any symptoms that the patient would report that are red flags to you or that actually alarm you and, and make you a little bit more concerned than others? You know, it, yes and no. The duration of the diarrhea sometimes determines that because you can have an acute diarrhea illness with fever, for example, fever being one of those symptoms. But if it lasts less than 72 hours in an immunocompetent, otherwise healthy person, it's actually not that much of a red flag. 
And so it, it kind of depends a little bit on the patient's background. However, the like red flag signs that I would look out for are fever, bloody stools, and then signs of dehydration. Like if they're not producing urine, their urine is becoming very concentrated. I know that's not really my system, but it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, weakness, dizziness, those sort of systemic impacts, then those are going to be red flags in, in an acute setting. Yeah, the they mentioned a lot about dysentery in the reading. I wondered if you could just I, I guess we're we're kind of jumping back to definitions, but can you define like what's dysentery? Is it just just bloody stool or is there a specific thing that makes you call it that? I think it's just bloody stool the way we use it. Uh-huh. It's just the, it's just a cooler sounding term. Yeah, I feel like we should use it more. Audience, please please use the word dysentery more to describe someone with like bloody diarrhea. It just seems more like this is serious. You really yeah, gotta take care of it. Uh, that bloody diarrhea still sounds pretty bad. I mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, but nobody said that on the Oregon Trail, want... right? Like yeah, you, sure. I have dysentery. <laughs> Elena, what's the next part of this case here, Mister Mister Ella? So it, it sounds like he was tachycardic. Blood pressure was okay, but he was tacky, and this has been going on for two days. What are we? What's happening next with him? Yeah, so he starts to describe his diarrhea a little bit more, just to make you happy. Uh, eight to 10 episodes of diarrhea per day. He does note that he has bright red blood on the surface of his stool. He hasn't had any recent antibiotic use, no new medications, no travel that he reports in the last few months. His initial labs are also notable for a little bit of an AKI. His creatinine's 1.3. His baseline was 0.9. His potassium is 3.3. His white count's 10. Uh, and he does have a normal hemoglobin as well. And so thinking about, you know, we've talked through how to categorize diarrhea, but in Mr. Ella's case, how would you decide whether or not to complete microbiologic assessment for the cause of his diarrhea? Actually, if you don't mind, we'll go back a little bit to categorizing his particular acute diarrhea. Because if you go to the ACG kind of acute diarrhea guidelines that was referenced um, prior to this, uh, one, they define dysenteric diarrhea as passage of grossly bloody stools. And this is going to be an important point because what you described in Mr. S was bright red blood noted on the surface of the stool. And so it's important to differentiate where that blood is and what it's coming from. Is it actually bloody stools or is he wiping so often because he has diarrhea that he's exacerbating a hemorrhoid, that there's some sort of um, you know, irritation? And, and his case sounds more like the latter. And it is important to make that distinction because watery diarrhea and dysenteric diarrhea kind of follow different pathways. And one of them being a little bit more concerning than the other, right? Like if he's having dysenteric diarrhea. The other thing about this case is going to be that normal H&H also suggests to you that this is not dysentery, but rather probably rectal outlet bleeding that has been exacerbated by the diarrhea. So in terms of then completing a microbiologic assessment, you know, you, you want to do that in dysentery and mild diarrhea with dysentery where, you know, there, there's either a low-grade fever or no fever, and you have that time to really wait for an assessment and target your antibiotics. Otherwise, if it's watery diarrhea and it's kind of moderate or severe illness, and again, you have fever that's lasting a while, it's not going away and you really need to treat it, then you you do that microbiologic assessment. It's a little confusing. There's a lovely flowchart. Basically, it boils down to, is there time to wait for that mi microbiologic assessment? And 
is it not going away on its own? And we really need to figure out what's going on so we can treat it. Then then the third reason to do it would be if there's a high risk for spreading whatever is going on to someone else. So if it's a healthcare worker, a daycare worker, a food industry worker who might be, you know, giving norovirus to someone, uh, you know, typhoid Mary should have probably had a microbiologic assessment. That's a that's a category where regardless of what their symptoms are, because of their risk, you should probably assess them. Yeah. Yeah. I I feel like a lot of times we throw around the term gastroenteritis and as long as it's like less than a few days or you know people get better within three days then you know frequently I'll see that we won't do a full evaluation of the cause Uh, do you have any timeline you think about for how long usually it's going to be that 72 hour mark that three-day mark exactly like you're saying Um, if it's not a dysentery and I'm going to keep using that word now if it's not a dysentery and it's watery diarrhea, then that 72-hour duration, if it's lasting and they're kind of febrile and I, I'm really feeling like I need to treat something, then you know that would be what the guidelines say. Now, if you have someone coming into the hospital because they have diarrhea to the point that they have an AKI with that baseline creatinine rise and he's febrile and he's tachycardic, you may want to do that microbiologic assessment at that point, you know, because the severity is there. Working in hospital medicine, I find like the patient had their worst day, like more, more bowel movements they could count the day they came in. And then sometimes by the time I'm rounding on them the next morning, we can't even get a stool sample because the diarrhea is gone. (laughs) (laughs) And, and going back to the blood in the stool, the, I, I definitely see way more often the person that's like, I had no blood in my diarrhea, and then I had so many episodes that eventually when I started wiping, I started seeing some blood on yeah. the toilet paper, yeah. paper and coating the stool. That that seems to be the majority of what I'm seeing. And not to jump the gun on the topic, but that resolution of diarrhea once they get into the hospital, you really have to consider like, what is the cause of that diarrhea? Is it osmotic? Are they eating something at home that now that you have kept them fasting, and not eating whatever food is at, I'm sure, the wonderful food at your hospital that they're still not eating, or you've kept them MPO for whatever right. reason, right? Is that the reason their diarrhea has gone away? You know, that that's always something in the back of my mind to consider uh, when that therapeutic admission happens or the therapeutic GI consult happens. Let's say we're, 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 we decide to do a, a microbiological workup, whatever that may look like. And I feel like sort of, especially in the outpatient setting, which is where my heart is, stool collection is no small like I feel like just asking patients to take a stool sample to the lab and and just for pro forma seems kind of burdensome. So I guess how can we how can we be parsimonious? Like what I guess what does the testing look like? Because usually when someone orders stool studies, it's everything. They just pick every single box, and we're doing like fecal elastase, and we're culturing stool, and you're looking for oven parasites, even though they have exactly zero risk factors for it. So what? How can we order tests that are smart if we actually are concerned for some sort of microbiologic cause that we actually want to address? So. So talking about the outpatient setting, if there is a travel component, which is often what we're seeing in these episodes of acute infectious diarrhea that need treatment, there's actually just empiric antibiotic therapy recommended. And that can depend a little bit on where they went and the regional susceptibilities of those bugs, for example. But there, you can just kind of follow the guidelines or your local infectious disease experts or your local travel clinic and just treat them empirically without sending the stools. I have to be honest, I don't do a lot of acute diarrhea workup in the outpatient, right? Because either they are sick enough that they need inpatient assessment, in which case we just collect their stool, or their acute illness has gotten better 
and I don't ever see them. So by the time they make it to me, usually I'm doing a microbiology, a biologic workup for chronic diarrhea. And I bring that up because then I can be a lot more parsimonious about which tests I'm going to request that uh, the patients send. And those are really going to be which bacteria, parasites, viruses can actually give you a chronic diarrhea. And I'm probably jumping the gun a little bit, but I'm going to talk about it anyways. And those are really going to be C. diff, right? That can give you a diarrhea for more than four weeks. Giardia, intamoeba can sometimes do it, and, and it can be a bloody diarrhea. And then you always have to consider CMV, particularly in someone immunocompromised. And then there's cryptosporidiosis, microsporidiosis, et cetera. But those kind of are, are the big ones that I would send specifically to evaluate from a microbiology standpoint. And this might- And that was ahead. more for the chronic outpatient yes. that's coming to see you. So back to Mr. Mr. Ella, and uh, this this is our patient who's coming in tachycardic, does not have bloody diarrhea, and he's having like eight to ten episodes per day. If if the night you know the night admitter is is putting sending this person in, and they want to send stool testing or just labs in general, what would you recommend they send? I think he's got a lot of the good labs already sent, right? That initial CBC, that initial BMP to evaluate his hydration status. So that's going to be where we start is, is he losing blood? How much water do we need or fluid do we need to replenish? And then in terms of stool, it depends a little bit on what your hospital is able to run. And I say that because there are now a lot of these non-culture-based tests that are PCR-based or um, like the the one that we run is PCR based. There's a, a couple of other ones that are based on. Um, are they I think antigen mostly, based? Yeah, antigen based, PCR based, and it, it can give you a variety of organisms that are evaluated. So the one that is from like Bio4 Diagnostics, for example, that's listed in the guidelines, runs 22 pathogens at once. And that test actually comes back much faster than a culture does because culture, you have to actually wait the two or three days for the bacteria to grow, in which case um, often they are already better or you've kind of missed the boat, right? So these non-culture-based tests can be a lot faster. Now, when you have the option of testing 22 pathogens at once, you also run into a lot of issues. One, one of our, our my favorite consultants here calls it the decerebrit panel, decerebrit panel. Right. You literally just don't have to think about it. You just send it all and something will come back positive, right? So you don't really have to think about, oh, is it bloody? Is it non-bloody? Is it uh, this or that? But that aside, the, like the shame of not thinking about it aside, you really have to think about with these tests, because they're PCR-based, like what is the true positivity rate? Like if this test comes back with uh, noting Giardia, right? It may have picked up like two spores. And is that truly your pathogen or is something else going on? Uh, Giardia is probably not a good example. Um, but often I'll see EPEC come back, the EPEC with a P. And often that's just a colonizer and it's not really helpful, but then patients really worry that they have an E. coli infection. And so with a lot of this testing, you do have to consider one cost and two, is it truly going to help you when you send it? I'm purposely not truly answering your question. Just telling you the things that I know. Iris, I've seen those, I've seen those panels that send like all the PCR tests and the the last two places I've worked uh, at Cashlack, I'm not sure if they're expensive or they found maybe that maybe it was because of what you're talking about, where you send these things. And since it's a PCR test, 
you're not you're not sure if you're picking up colonizers or what's the active infection, but I don't see it that much. So I'm mostly seeing cultures be sent. I know neurovirus is really common. Is it is that something that we would pick up in just a routine like stool culture, or is that something that you have to send for separately, or does that just not matter? In some cases, so it the situations where it does matter is going to be in those public health reportable cases. So you want to know whether there's an outbreak at a daycare center, whether there's a norovirus or a rotavirus, you know, outbreak in a cruise ship, for example. Like in those settings where it is important to know which pathogen it is for tracing purposes, then that that's where that really comes in handy. It's not going to culture out unless you specifically ask for that culture, right? Because usually the culture medium are targeted at specific bacteria. So I believe most labs I've seen, you can culture like Salmonella, E. coli, and uh, Shigella together. Yersinia can't be. But the viruses need separate media. And so it's going to be a, a separate test that you're specifically asking for in most cases from what I've seen. That, that does bring up the thought that now in 2021, one of the acute diarrhea pathogens needs to be COVID-19, right? There are a lot of GI side effects to COVID. And diarrhea can be a presenting symptom of COVID. So that that should be thought about. At the end of the day, though, because there are no viral, you can't treat them, right? So you, you may need to quarantine these folks, limit the exposure to everyone else. And from a public health standpoint, that's going to be important. But um, from a treatment for your individual patient standpoint, not so much. Elena, what's next for Mr. Ella? So... Just thinking one more question too, if he, if he did have what we thought was true dysentery, would you send anything different or would you still primarily send a PCR looking at for the causes such as Shigella, Salmonella, Campylobacter that you, you might want to treat? That's a really good question because I, I think in the dysentery situation, right, there's a limited number of pathogens that truly cause dysentery. So you would be better off sending a culture if you had the time to wait and really target those bugs like EHEC, like Shigella, uh, like Salmonella sometimes in Tamiba that can really cause dysentery. The reason why that's going to be important as well is because some of those dysentery bugs, you should not treat with antibiotics, right? Specifically the hemolytic, um, the H, uh, sorry, the EHEC, right? Because with antibiotic treatment, there has been shown to be increased risk of hemolytic uremic syndrome. And so you really want to know whether that's the etiology, because then you really avoid antibiotics. The other one that you should think about is non-typhoid salmonella. And that's the one where antibiotic treatment could prolong an asymptomatic carrier state. So you're potentially infecting more people. Is that truly important for, for the current patient? Unclear. But those two are the ones, particularly for board exams or tests, you know, you don't treat with antibiotics. That's helpful. When I, but when I was reading about that, what, what got me a little bit is, I mean, what typically happens is if someone comes into the hospital, they're sick, they're dehydrated, they have a, a diarrhea illness, diarrheal illness, and they have some fever. A lot of the times, if it, if it stops when they, when I, before I see them the first day, or if it stops pretty quickly, we don't do antibiotics. But if it, if it's still going on throughout that first day profusely, Oftentimes we're giving an antibiotic and you just don't know at that point, you know, you won't, you won't have, unless you have one of those fancy panels, you, you just wouldn't know. So I guess it's just like, you're hoping that it's not EHEC and you're pushing this person towards like hemolytic uremic syndrome. 
Yeah, and it's it's a little hard to say whether they're going into hemolytic uremic syndrome because of the E. coli and how bad that infection is, or because of something about the antibiotic. I don't think we understand that very well. And that's probably a better question for an ID physician, to be honest with you. But I think you have to treat the patient that's in front of you, right? And and if they're looking bad, they're not responding and you don't know, I would send the culture, you know, always culture them before you start the antibiotic and at least have it brewing so that one, if you need to, you can narrow your antibiotic spectrum. And two, if it does come back, heck, maybe you just stop that antibiotic and really focus on rehydrating them. I always thought it was because of the F plasma transfection from the uh whatever anyways there's sorry. a reason i'm a gi doctor <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't want to talk about plasmids Stuart. <laughs> is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals BetterHelp can assist your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist wado i i think we've all had the experience of knowing someone um and maybe that someone is ourselves who would benefit from therapy but we also know that historically it's been incredibly hard to connect people with therapy and i, I feel like better help is here to help us that's completely true and what always struck me when i was first practicing in primary care both in residency and then when i got out into practice was just like how hard it seemed and how expensive it was to get somebody to have a therapist and it was really a high bar and not something that most people felt like they could have and for me as a resident i felt that i needed a therapist for a very long time and i started actually using better help before they were a sponsor and i think it's great it was so easy and it finally got me through that inertia of like making an appointment because I could just do it online and I didn't have to go anywhere to get the appointment. You can either do phone or video or you can text with your therapist. I'm on my second counselor through BetterHelp because the first counselor really wasn't right for me and I switched and it was super easy to switch, didn't cost me anything. And I'm really enjoying the experience of finally being in therapy, which is probably something I should have done 20 years ago, Paul. You can ask anybody that knows me. <laughs> <laughs> well, happily, BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash curb. That's better H-E-L-P and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Curbsiders listeners get 10% off of their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash curb. Okay, <laughs> something that I think, Iris, I think is probably more solidly in your wheelhouse. Maybe I'll throw this to Paul first. Paul, are you afraid, like, what's your practice on giving anti-diarrheals to patients with an acute diarrhea, Paul? Not afraid. I, you know, I, I feel like there's like, there was an up-to-date warning for a period of time, like, just be not for use with infectious diarrhea for loperamide specifically, we're like, uh, does that kill them instantly? Will their bowels explode? Maybe I should just avoid that. Just help them drink lots of fluid. So why don't we say wary instead? So I guess, um, rather than being more public about my own shame, why don't I turn this into a question and ask you, let's, let's make Mr. Ella slightly less sick, maybe not febrile, maybe not without renal insufficiency or dehydrated. How do we keep him from getting there and what kind of supportive management can we throw at him? Yeah. When you have, so let's talk a little bit about the mild illness, right? So if it's mild, he's not that sick rehydration, and really low paramide is really safe and it is reasonable to use. The, the one caveat where I'm really cautious about not using low paramide would be if I'm concerned about C. diff. And honestly, nowadays, I'm almost always concerned about C. diff because it's no longer an antibiotic associated or triggered 
infection alone, right? There's so much potential for community spread that it kind of always has to be in your differential, particularly acute diarrhea, chronic diarrhea, what have you. And so once I rule out the C. diff is when I'm a little bit more generous with loperamide if there's watery diarrhea, kind of a milder illness. Um, and what, sorry to interrupt, but what is the specific concern? If the patient had C. diff and gave loperamide, would they just kill toxic? Over or- Toxic megacolon okay. and development yeah, of an ileus, that, that would be the big concern. Yeah, we should, yeah. We should do that then. And we, yeah, and we even talked to somebody about C. diff, and the, his practice was if he has p- patients on therapy for like five days and very clearly the C. diff is like under control and the patient's not sick, he will even give them a little bit of antidiarrheals and, you know, with monitoring. Um, so even then it wasn't an absolute, but uh, I completely agreed that like if the person's still acutely ill, you know, and your and C. diff's not ruled out. But yeah, I, I do feel that I see a lot of like people, maybe they came in and they were more towards the moderate or severe, like the day before they got there, but now they're here in front of me and they're not that sick and they're getting a little better. And they're like, can I just take this? Cause like now they have that thing where they, they eat their tray and immediately they have to run to the bathroom and they're having that like sort of post-infectious, I think it's the post-infectious IBS in those patients, you know, I think it makes sense to use it, but that's, that's what I hear all the time from patients. As soon as I eat something, I have to run to the bathroom and If we go back a little bit to the pathophysiology of that, right, it's usually because there has been some destruction of villi. Uh And so then the etiology of diarrhea there in that acute post-infectious period is going to be a decrease in in surface area. So you're not absorbing as well. Later on, they actually, it's really interesting that they get... lactose deficiency, right? You, you have a lot of patients who come back with uh, after a gastroenteritis and they're like, I can't eat dairy anymore. And that's because lactase is at the very tip top of your microvilli. So that's the um, disaccharidase, you know what I'm talking about, yeah. that's most likely to get destroyed after, oh, after a gastroenteritis. Yeah, that Amy Oxentango taught me that. Can we talk about the oral rehydration solution and like, why are we not, maybe you're using it in your hospital, but why are we not giving that to more patients? And I feel like everyone gets IV fluids and maybe it's just this because they're inpatients, but. I I think that's, that's an excellent point. And there's a lot of confusion in, for patients about this, right? Because most of my patients who have diarrhea think that they should be drinking Gatorade and Gatorade is, is actually not really good for diarrhea for a number of reasons. One, the um, sodium, potassium like balance, it's not enough sodium. But the other thing is if you look at the osmolarity of Gatorade, it's actually a hyperosmolar solution. And so in your patients who already cannot regulate their water, you're actually pulling more water into their system to dilute out that Gatorade. So it, it's off, it, it actually can cause more diarrhea. That aside, so I love talking to patients about oral rehydration solution, particularly if they have chronic diarrhea, which is when I tend to see them, because it, it really is so simple and we know that it works. I, I have no idea why we don't use it more often. I think we use IV fluids in these patients because often they can't tolerate orals as well. And we're afraid of giving them orals and, and kind of triggering more diarrhea. So we bowel rest them. But that being aside, oral rehydration solution and it goes back to that sodium glucose transporter, right? That balanced transporter that allows water to cross your lumen. And what I tell my patients is, yeah, you can buy it. There's Pedialyte. And there's also a couple of um, very targeted oral rehydration solutions that are available for purchase. But they can make it themselves. You can just look up a recipe online and you just boil water with some salt and some sugar. And then you just keep a big tub of it at home when you have the diarrhea. And I think that is 
it's cheap, it's effective, doesn't taste bad. And so that that's what I would actually recommend to patients to do. Whether you can do that in the hospital or not, I don't know. Paul, I'm going to make some with the kids this weekend and send some over to your house. Sounds great. Yeah. I'll, <laughs> is, there, is there a purple flavor I can add to it that will not cause worsening diarrhea? No, because that will worsen your diarrhea. That's, yeah. Oh. <laughs> All right. So, we, yeah, go, go ahead, Paul. I was, I was going to say, before we started, um, we, we were pre-gaming. I met, someone brought up bismuth, and your eyes lit up, and there was just a glow about you, and you were just so excited to talk about it. And I feel like this this feels like a good place for it. I mean, if we, if you want to wait and sort of save it up just so that you really have some delayed gratification, that's okay, too. But now feels like a good time to talk about bismuth. Now's a good time. I can mention it later, too, if you want. Um, <laughs> there, there will be a good place for it later. Um, but bismuth is in the... ACG guidelines for consideration for prevention of acute uh, traveler's diarrhea. And honestly, like when we think about bismuth, and it's like that, that like old school jingle that maybe Elena would be too young to remember. Oh, God. Um, I know it. Okay, good. Um, but, diarrhea. Yeah, but it really does so much, right? And you're like, how can one drug do so much? And it's so cheap. And then we often forget about it. But there's two aspects to bismuth that make it really good for prevention and for diarrhea and also for some of these chronic functional symptoms as well. The salicylate component of it actually causes, has an anti-inflammatory effect. And I think it's uh, some combination of the bismuth and salicylate, don't quote me on why, but it's also an antimicrobial. But it's an antimicrobial without causing like drug resistance, right? Because it's not targeting the, the bacteria itself. And so it has this nice property of preventing infection and decreasing inflammation. And even though it's a salicylate component, it doesn't have the same GI toxicity or potential for like ulcers that other salicylate drugs like aspirin might. So it's actually, it is really good. The caveat of using it though, is that you have to dose it very frequently. So it's like three to four times a day, which can be problematic for compliance. It can cause constipation, which is really nice in these diarrhea patients, um, but it also darkens stool right. and blackens the tongue. And so you have to warn your patients that that's going to happen. Otherwise, then you're calling GI for a scope because they're yep. like GI bleeding. <laughs> I, I always think it's funny when I get a call from the ER for Melina. When I walk down, I'm like, so uh, how much uh, Pepto-Bismol did you take? I'm like, you know, uh, funny you ask. Right, right. Good. All right, so back to Mr. Ella. What if he was on immunosuppression for a renal transplant and came in with this acute diarrheal illness. How would that change your workup? And would you send any additional testing in that case? Yeah, I think in anyone who's immunocompromised, you do have to broaden your infectious differential, right? HIV, um, immunosuppression, and even chronic steroid therapy. So you have to think about this in your patients with rheumatoid arthritis, for example, who are on chronic suppressive prednisone, even at a low dose, you broaden your infectious differential. So these are the situations where if you do have access to those large panels, this is the time to send them. But the specific bugs that you're probably thinking about are specifically CMV, cryptosporidium, cyclospora, cytoisospora, microspora, MAC. You have to think about disseminated TB in some patients. But two caveats there is you would consider scoping him if he was on immunosuppression, specifically if he were on CellCept, because CellCept causes a, a damage to, uh, to the GI tract. And then more recently, if, if there are certain checkpoint inhibitor chemotherapeutic agents, um, ipilimumab, for example, I butchered that, sorry. <laughs> Ipilimum, oh God, I can't, I can't. 
Pembrolizumab is one of Pembrolizumab. them. Pembrolizumab. That, that, that um, I can say. <laughs> yes. I don't know why I picked the harder one. <laughs> so for, for our Pembro patients, right, you really do have to scope them and biopsy to see if it's a checkpoint inhibitor-induced toxicity. So cell sept, those checkpoint inhibitors, and then for CMV, remember that CMV testing in the blood doesn't equal CMV-induced infection. So for CMV-induced colitis in the acute setting, you really do have to biopsy it and show that there is an organism in the colon in order to say that it's a CMV-induced colitis. Yeah, a quick comment. There was a woman, uh, this is many years ago at this point, who had that she was on immunosuppression, got biopsied, were thinking it was going to be CMV, and it ended up being uh, strongyloides. I believe oh, yeah. they Ooh. they found that on the on the biopsy. It was a crazy it was a crazy case. And then the first time I saw autoimmune colitis, I didn't even know it existed. Pembro was relatively new at the time, and we had yeah. this patient who was being treated at a very famous cancer hospital and had been like he was at my hospital, so we didn't have all the records. And he was there for like several days and we're like this diarrhea and we're working it up. We call his cancer doctor. We're like, are you sure this has nothing to do? And he's like, oh, we know what that is. Just send him back. He had that here. And we're like, we, it was our, yeah, they didn't tell us that on the first time we had called them. Uh, so I will never miss that diagnosis again. Um, I have to say the first time I, I've only found a worm once on colonoscopy. <sighs> it was like one of the best days of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't really sure which direction you were going to go with that, actually. No, um, I, I wasn't I, sure either. We can cut that out if you <laughs> no, so I wish I had not. to say it. Um, if if you guys heard me, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if you guys heard me. Okay. You didn't hear me? Thank God. <laughs> Stuart, can you just mute yourself when you're in your own little sideshow? No, 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 no. My knee started hurt me real bad, and I had to uh, straighten it out, and it <laughs> really, really hurt. Okay. I do hypnosis for that. <laughs> Sidebar. Elena, do you want to try to do the recap and then maybe Iris can uh, tweak it uh, if there's anything you... Definitely. So just recapping the initial evaluation of acute diarrhea. So overall, if people come in with very acute symptoms and they're doing okay, doesn't seem like they're dehydrated, no need to do a stool-based study workup. After 72 hours, if they have persistent symptoms... So when we might consider additional testing with C. diff, BI, PCRs, or, or if they have dysentery, then performing cultures for specific organisms would be more helpful. Uh, another thing to remember is testing patients for COVID, but the other viral PCRs might only be helpful in the setting where you think an outbreak is more likely, like a daycare or a cruise ship. Uh, and then thinking about immunosuppressed patients, uh, really what I gather is think about calling GI if they're on cell sept or checkpoint inhibitors <laughs> uh, so they can help you and potentially perform an, an endoscopy workup. And then CMV testing in the blood does not equal colitis. So you need to consider getting a tissue diagnosis as well. And then sending additional tests for more rare bacterial causes. Yeah, and viral as well. And just to clarify in dysentery, it's not that you can't send a PCR. It's just that if you don't have a PCR available, then you're more likely to send a stool culture if there's dysentery than if there's not dysentery. Okay. Just to kind of clarify that point. Yeah, that's in helpful. In our hospital, um, if you need to culture more than five pathogens, then it's more cost-effective to send the PCR. And that, that might be a consideration 
or how to choose one or the other. And we talked about uh, hydration, either oral rehydration, IV hydration, and then antidiarrheals. If we if we're not concerned for C diff or something that's going to cause a toxic megacolon, then antidiarrheals should be okay. And if we're going to give them bismuth, tell them that their stools may and their tongue may turn black. Iris, talking about acute diarrhea, what are some take home points you want to make sure the listeners remember? So, one is make sure it is diarrhea, and clarify if and if they're talking about bloody diarrhea, right? Really clarify that it's dysentery and not just rectal outlet bleeding um, irritating them. Uh, Your workup and management really needs to be focused on how bad your patient's symptoms are and how severe they are in terms of a systemic illness and the duration of that diarrhea. Um, And then most acute diarrheas that are infectious will improve without antibiotics and really recommend that oral rehydration solution as opposed to an electrolyte-based rehydration like Gatorade, Powerade. And your exceptions for antibiotic treatment are going to be high fever, immunocompromised patients, dysentery, that's not resolving, and traveler's diarrhea um, generally gets antibiotic treatment. Caveats being do not treat EHEC, E. coli, and consider not treating um, non-typhoid salmonella if your patient doesn't need it. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Get your show notes at curbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at curbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. I was kind of hoping you would just read the script and say crap slider so I go ew. Anyways, we're committed to providing you with high value practice change knowledge and to do that we need your feedback so please subscribe, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producers for this episode, the one and only Elena Gibson and to our social media team Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter Maddie, Mad Dog Morgan on this thing called Instagram that I still haven't figured out. Tima Karganoff on our website. MJ Allen and Jeff Carter on the transcription team. That's a new one. And Chris, the Chuman Shoe on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. And good night. And I wanted to remind the audience that this and most of our episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health Continuing Education at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. Elena Gibson here. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music that you're hearing now. We should also thank the amazing Claire Morgan of not really editing our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and good night.